Look at you brave souls. I told you I was going to teach on Hebrews and you showed up anyways. Yeah, you're just kind of chuckling now. You're going to see why I'm saying that. Hopefully uh, you have a bulletin with you this morning and uh, in that bulletin is some notes and you might want to pull those out and I would uh, suggest that it would be really valuable to you over the next couple of weeks if you brought a notepad with you and you could begin uh, keeping notes that way. Well, who are we kidding? It's not going to be weeks, okay? Months. Over the next couple months, bring a notepad. I understand there's a betting pool going on right now as to the end date. I asked them if I could have a, a share in that, and they said no, because you can control the end date. So I want a percentage. Whoever's running that betting pool, okay? I want to take on that. Um, we're going to get through three verses this morning, okay? I know. Um, this won't be like Revelation where it took 57 weeks might take 58 weeks, okay? Um, it, it's it's uh, incredibly deep theological truth. Revelation um, is, is something that is so far out there, it's difficult to get your mind around it. This is, this is deep theology, and yet um, we shouldn't run away from it. Now, there's many people who avoid Hebrews, and some of it because they're afraid of it. They're afraid of the warnings, and it makes people uncomfortable. Others think it's too difficult, and so they'd just as soon not spend any time in it. But I'm here to tell you, these are profound truths from God, and He would not have included it in the canon of Scripture if He didn't want us to understand it. So if God gave it to us, it was for a reason. The, the message is really clear, so there isn't any reason why we shouldn't understand it. So together... We're going to work through it and understand it, and we're, we're going to profit from it together. And I'm here to tell you that studying Hebrews is an adventure, and God will push your buttons, I promise you. He really will, because there's some things that will come in here that may cause you to be a little unsettled with what you believed before you saw this. Part of the adventure is the fact that it's difficult. It, it, it's a book that has really deep truth, and it demands diligent study on your part. So I would encourage you throughout the course of the week, Go back over the verses that we're looking at this morning, but read in advance for the ones that are coming up next week. Not only with many deep truths, but here's the bigger truth. Apart from God teaching us, we won't understand it. It requires the Holy Spirit. And a person who is a believer in Jesus Christ is promised that we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, and God said He uses His Holy Spirit to teach us. Uh, part of the complication of Hebrews is you need an understanding of the Old Testament. And some people just shy away from the Old Testament, especially the book of Leviticus because of the Levitical law. We're going to do that together. I'm going to help you to understand it if that's been something that you've always kind of shied away from. But to really understand what was written here, you need a, a framework of the Old Testament. Now, the writer has absolutely no delay in getting to his point, his primary purpose in explaining it to us why he wrote this. And, and I can illustrate it for you this way. When um, my sons Adam and Derek were about 8 and 10 years of age, uh, Adam being, being the oldest, um, we were going on a family vacation. And the boys wanted to have some extra spending money. They were just trying to earn some extra cash to spend on vacation. And um, I gave them some jobs around the house and they weren't earning enough money, so they went to a couple neighbors and they still weren't earning enough money. Well, I was walking through Sam's Club and I happened to see on the shelf um, some of these boxes of fundraiser candy bars. And I thought, hmm, the boys could probably sell those. They could do a little door-to-door -door thing, try and raise some extra money. Got to love capitalism, right? 
So um, I bought them each a case of chocolate candy bars to go door to door. Their instructions were to tell people, hey, this is not a band fundraiser. We're not raising money for our choir at school. But they, they were to tell people why they were doing it. So Adam gets his box of chocolates, and Derek gets his box of chocolates. And of course, Adam being the firstborn is running right up to people's houses. Derek's lagging right behind him. And Adam pounds on the door, and, and there they stand with their their blonde hair and their eyes bright and shiny and ready to sell their candy bars. But Derek knows that Adam has one up on him because he's taller and he's older. And so Derek, prior to them going out, had opened up his box of candy bars and got a marker out and wrote on the inside cover, when he opened up his box, it would say on the inside, mine are beater. (laughs) Some of you didn't catch on to that. He spelled better, B-E-E-T-E-R, okay? Mine are beater. Well, of course, because he misspelled it, everybody found that to be very adorable, and so Derek sold out of his candy bars fast. (laughs) Here's the point of the author of Hebrews. His, His point is, Jesus is beater, okay? Jesus is better. He's contrasting everything from the Old Testament to the New Testament, Everything from the law contrasted to grace, and it's to show that Jesus is better. Christ is superior to everyone and to everything, absolutely, infinitely superior to everything that the law brought, everything under the Levitical system. But he does it in such a way that he's not diminishing the law, but just showing Jesus is better. And so what we have is this background um, that I, I need to share with you. It'll take me just a few minutes to set it up. It's part of why we can only do three verses today, but it's important for you to understand the setting. Here's, here's some of the background. Um, many people struggle over who the author is. I had people approach me this week saying, are you going to tell us who the author is finally? Well, no, after 2,000 years of church history, no one knows who the author is. Many people speculate it's Paul and that he dictated to Luke because it's written in absolutely beautiful Koine Greek. And Luke was a master of Koine Greek. We don't know. Maybe Luke wrote it himself. Some say Apollos. Apollos was a, a, just a brilliant intellectual, uh, an Alexandrian. Some say it was Barnabas, one of Paul's friends. The, the truth is we don't know. What we do know is it was written between 64 and 68 A.D. Now, if you're a historian buff, that would click with you right away because you know that's when Caesar Nero was in power. That's when the church was being used for nightlights in Caesar's courtyard. Caesar was literally grabbing the Christians, putting them on a stake, and using them for nightlights. He was throwing them to the lions or beheading them if they were lucky. So this is a period of time when the church is being persecuted. So who is this author writing to? Well, it says the letter written to the Hebrews, meaning Jewish believers. So we have these Hebrew people who are of the Jewish faith who became believers in Jesus Christ, living with a Jewish heritage, living with persecution. So imagine this morning, you leave here from the services and you decide, I need to run to the grocery store. I'm going to go to the market and I've got to pick up a head of lettuce and maybe a dozen eggs. You make your purchase and you come out of the market And without you knowing it, some people are waiting behind pillars to grab you, and they snatch you and haul you away. They put a shroud over your head, and they throw you in a dungeon. And in that moment, you know. You you know that you're going to either be beheaded, 
or you're going to be used for one of Caesar's nightlights, or you're going to be thrown to the lions. That's this group of people. They're living with this insecurity, and it's a constant insecurity. And when you live with constant insecurity, it causes you to want to look for security. Well, they came from the Jewish system, which was sanctioned by Rome. And Rome wasn't burning the Jews. Rome wasn't throwing the Jews to the lions. It was throwing the lion, the Christians to the lions. So the temptation was for these Hebrew believers to go back to Judaism, to go to what they knew was safe, that, that safety net that they had. We also know this was written to saints, believers, who were not young in the faith. They were mature in the faith, as you'll see by the time we get to chapter 10. And these particular individuals are part of a pretty large church. From what we see here, it's a large community of believers. It was written at a really strategic time in history. The temple still stands. The sacrifices are still being made in Jerusalem. So these people who grew up with a Levitical system, knowing that there was a high priest who was making sacrifices on their behalf, they're no longer part of that, but they see the temple still standing. But the ages are colliding, and God is shaking things according to Hebrews 12. And it's because he doesn't want us to trust in things that vanish, he caused the writer of Hebrews to write this note. You and I live in a period of time, 2014, when the order of things are being shaken still today, and we can't trust in things that vanish. It's very difficult to grasp what a first century Jew was thinking and what they were living with when they became believers. See, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, they had no system of a single God. They didn't know of the one true God. They worshipped idols. They worshipped many gods. And they had pagan systems. The Jews at least worshipped the one true God. They had a God-centered religion. And they had an appointed place of worship. Can you imagine to be asked to forsake all those things which had been established for centuries? And you're told to give up what you knew? That's, to, that's an enormous demand upon them. That's what's being asked to them. So it's natural for those who believe in Jesus, who knew this safety net system, to want to go back to it, especially since the temple still stands. That's what they're tempted to lean into. Now also, here's another complication at this period in time. Um, Paul was very much one who addressed it, is that there was an effort made, an, an aggressive effort, by the Christian Jews to take the Christian Gentiles and draft them into the Jewish church if you will. And so Paul, when he would work among the Gentiles, and when you think Gentiles, just think anybody who's not a Jew. When he would work among the Greeks, for instance, and he was leading them to Christ, he made a trip back to Jerusalem. And he started telling the church in Jerusalem the great things that God was doing through the ministry there. And as a result, the Jews had a bit of a pushback. And they were telling him that they wanted to see those Gentiles grafted into the Jewish church. Here, let me show you on the screen, Acts 21.19. This is Paul that it's speaking of. After he, meaning Paul, had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. So Jewish Christians are glorifying God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed and they are all zealous for the law. If you'll notice what I underlined, you've got Jews who became believers in Jesus Christ, and they're zealous for the law. So not only do you have Christians who are being executed for their faith, 
you have Jewish Christians who are still embracing the old Levitical system, and they want all the external measurements of it brought into the church. So instead of understanding that there's neither Jew nor Gentile in Jesus, they're dreaming of Gentiles being joined into the Jewish church. That's the framework. That's the background of this story of Hebrews. Now, here's three words before we get into verse 1 that are used repeatedly. First word that's used all the time is better. Beater, okay? The word better. And the next word is perfect, and the word after that is eternal. But let's look at the way the word better is used. It's used 13 times. Here's how it's used. First, Christ is better than the angels. We'll see that next week as we look at angelology. Fallen angels and holy angels. And then we see in Hebrews 7.19, he brings a better hope. And then this one, Hebrews 8.6, he has a better covenant, which was established on better promises. Uh, the, the word after better is perfect. It's used 14 times in the Greek language. And in this concept, it means that Jesus makes a perfect standing before God of you and I. Look at this example on the screen, Hebrews 10.14. It says, perfected forever them that are sanctified. Who's the them, church? Us. That's right. He's perfected forever us. See, everything's better in Jesus because He's perfected us. It means it's not going to change. When God does it, it's perfect forever. Perfected forever them that are sanctified. So here's what the writer's already doing. He's contrasting the Old Testament law with the New Testament grace. And here's the third word, this word eternal. Christ, Hebrews 5.9, is the author of eternal salvation. Through His death, He obtained eternal redemption, Hebrews 9.12. Here's another eternal example. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. See the concept? He's eternal. Better, perfect, eternal. So when you combine all three of these words together, look at me on the screen at this. Here's what you discover. Jesus gives us a better life. And he gives us a perfect standing before God. And what he offers is eternal. See, the system of the law could never possibly accomplish that. What Jesus does in a short period of time, he brings a redemption that's eternal. So if you're ready, Hebrews 1.1. Here we go, church. It says this, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions, and in many ways, and immediately we get a hint at how God formulated the Old Testament. Now, some people come to me occasionally and say, Mark, how do you study when you put these things together? What's your process? Well, here's a a tip for you. Typically, when I start out my week, or maybe a couple weeks in advance of a study like this one, I'll, I'll first of all begin asking God, what do you want me to communicate to your church? But when I begin studying and I I find the text that I'm going to work through, I'll take a notepad and I'll set it next to me. And as I'm reading through a verse like that, I'll look at that first word that jumps out at me as the Father's. And I'll write that down, the Father's question mark. Because I'm wondering, who's he talking about? And then I'll write down the Prophet's question mark. And I'll come back to that because I'm thinking, who's the Prophet's that he's talking about? And then many portions in many ways, what is that? So I'll write that down. Many portions, many ways, question mark. Well, clearly the fathers are those Old Testament saints. Those who lived before Jesus. That's the fathers that he's talking about. Well, who are the prophets? Noah, Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. All those writers of the Old Testament. Well, what's many portions in many ways? Well, that's experience. And the methodology by which God spoke like the children coming out of the land of Egypt, the children of Israel. 
God's speaking through many portions in many ways. So he's formulating this argument right away that God spoke long ago. So Hebrews opens up with this really important declaration. God spoke. God speaks and we have his word. So right at the beginning, you're confronted with the reality of God and that God spoke with variation. What's what's some of the variation, church? Well, he spoke to Moses in the burning bush. He spoke to Elijah in the temple. Elijah saying, in the year that King Uzziah died, I was in the temple and I saw God the Father high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. He spoke in a different way there. What about with Elijah? In a still, small voice, Scripture says. Elijah's hiding in a cave. Earthquake, God is not in the earthquake. Powerful hurricane, God is not in the wind. But God spoke in a still, small voice. So we have this variation. What about Hosea? Family circumstances, his life was a mess. His family was crumbling. And God spoke through the circumstances. So God might show up in Persia, in southern Iraq, or he might show up in Babylon, or in Egypt, but it's all God. So in many portions, all of these cresting towards one distinct purpose, preparing us for the arrival of Christ. So many different ways, but always God speaking. And the writer tells us God spoke through divine revelation, through Moses, through Daniel, through Isaiah, through Elijah. And he used these Old Testament individuals as his instruments. There's a verse to remind you of that on the screen. And it comes from 2 Peter 1.21. No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now, if you're like me, I'm a literalist. In other words, I believe that Every word of the original text was inspired by God. Okay? God spoke. Men were moved through God's Spirit, and they wrote down the words that God decided they should write. And they did it in many ways, many literary forms, poetic, law, commandments. Some of it's revelation, but it's all God speaking. And yet, as important as the Old Testament is, it's fragmentary written over 1,500 years through 40 different authors, but it's in progressive revelation. What do I mean by that? Progressive revelation is this. Genesis gives us some of the truth. Exodus gives us a little bit more. Each one builds on the other. They build and they build and they build, progressing and progressing. And then going from the Old Testament to the New Testament, progressive revelation comes to a point where it stops at the end of the Old Testament. So you've got the book of Genesis and the book of Malachi, and Malachi ends. And you know what happens? Exactly. Silence. 400 years. They've had progressive revelation all this period of time. Nothing until Jesus shows up on the scene. And so the silence stops Now, understand in your mind, the Old Testament is promise. It's promise, 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 pointing forward. The New Testament is fulfillment. That's why Jesus said this in Matthew 5.15, Do not think that I came to abolish the law, the Old Testament, but I came to fulfill it, because the New Testament is fulfillment. That's what it's all about. So we understand very clearly that those Old Testament writers, the men of faith who wrote, they're trusting in a promise that they can't see, they haven't yet understood, trusting in a promise yet to be fulfilled in the future. Uh, we're told actually from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 39, 
that that gained them approval from God. Look with me on the screen. These individuals gained approval through their faith even though they did not receive what was promised to them. They hear the promise, but they didn't see it. So they never saw the fulfillment. They foresaw it without realizing it. So Peter is in the New Testament, and he's looking back on those guys. Look what he had to say. 1 Peter 1.10. As to this salvation, meaning what you and I have today, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. I want to be really, really clear with you. The Old Testament is not inferior. That's not what I'm suggesting at all. It's in progress. And it remained in progress until truth was finalized in Jesus. So Noah had a bit of the pieces. Micah had a bit of the pieces. But everything in some way is pointing towards the Messiah. And when Jesus came, everything was made complete. So if you want to take verse 1 this way, kind of an analysis nutshell. Long time ago... God spoke to your spiritual ancestors. And they had these pieces. But now, look at verse 2. In these last days, has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. My Bible college professors would not like what I'm about to do, but I'm going to do it anyways. Here's a, a big picture of the New Testament. This big picture image you see on the screen is how the New Testament's put together. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, that's the story. That's about, all about Jesus. But when you get to the book of Acts, and Acts through John 1, 2, and 3, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, that's commentary. That's the epistles or the letters. All those guys giving commentary about the story. And when you get to Revelation, it's the culmination. So you, you got the story, you got the commentary, and you got the culmination. That's how the New Testament is put together. And you know what it is? From beginning to end, the New Testament is Jesus. That's what it's all about. So no Old Testament prophet had the whole truth. They had bits and pieces. They had fragments. But Jesus comes, and he's God's final revelation. That's why John 1.1 starts out this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the same was in the beginning with God. Because the Word is the Word of God. And it's the full revelation of God. God, full, perfect revelation, waiting for the Son to arrive. So here's what we hear. The God who can speak and who does speak in many ways finally speaks again after 400 years of silence in one way, through one person, the Son, Jesus Christ. It's absolutely brilliant. He's done this just in two verses So let's break it down a little bit because here's a couple phrases that are used. These last days, it says in verse 2. That's not talking about revelation, not talking about end times. There's a phrase that when the Hebrew believers heard it, immediately reminded them of a messianic promise because Old Testament thinking is telling them that this phrase, these last days, is the time when the Messiah would come. When the Messiah would bring everything from promise stage to fulfillment stage. So people living in the Old Testament looking forward would say, in the last days, when the Messiah arrives, he'll bring fulfillment. The woman at the well understood that. When Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman, he begins asking her who she thinks he is. And look at her response. It comes from John 4.25. 
I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. See, what you see is the Hebrew way of thinking. The mindset is, when he comes, he's going to bring it understanding. He'll bring fulfillment. She knew the Messiah would unfold the revelation. So here's what we find right away. Jesus is more than the last in a long line of prophets. He reveals a completely new age. Now, if you feel like you've gone subterranean already, wait for the next part of verse 2, because it says that he was appointed heir of all things. What's going on with that? Appointed heir of all things. Now, this is not a chronological term. This has to do with legal rights, especially the legal rights of inheritance and authority. So here's my premise for this. Everything that exists, everything, planet Earth, stratosphere, universe, heavens, everything that exists, exists for Jesus. That's what Scripture says. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. We don't do this very often at New Hope, but I'm going to ask two of you to read some passages for us this morning. I need one person to find Colossians 1.16 in the New Testament. And when you find it, I'm going to have you read that for the rest of the group, and I'm going to have you read it good and loud. But Colossians 1.16 expands on this a little bit. So somebody find that. Understand this. Not only were all things created by Christ, but they were created for Him. Colossians 1.16 speaks to that. Somebody have that? Go, go ahead with it, Sherry. Read it really loud, would you? Yep. Mm-hmm. You hear that word all? Doesn't mean some. All things. So Paul understood that. Look with me on the screen, Romans eleven thirty six. From him, through him, to him are all things. F- finish it with me, church. To him be the glory forever. See, these guys really got it. They understood it. All things, everything belongs to him. So this this verb that's used here by the author, appointed, is a bit unexpected. When he says he's appointed heir, you'd step back and say, well, how's he appointed heir? I thought he was God. What's going on there? It it seemed like he would simply be the heir. So in in the thinking of the Greek mind, there's no thought of entering into possession. Rather, what we understand from Scripture is that Jesus surrendered everything that he already had, came to planet Earth, did what the Father sent him to do, and then reascended to heaven, re-entering into his possession. Now, throughout the course of the study of the book of Hebrews, I'm going to use some theologians who are much more brilliant than me, who've studied this for 20, 30, 40 years, and uh, occasionally I'm going to bring up some quotes, and one of them happens to be Dr. Bob Utley, and I want you to see how he approached this Um, Dr. Utley had this to say about this heir concept. Heir of all things is a title of dignity and shows that Christ has the supreme place in all of the mighty universe. His exaltation to the highest place in heaven after his work on earth was done did not mark some new dignity, but his re-entry to his rightful place. So somebody look up for us Philippians 2.6. Philippians 2.6 speaks to something very specific going on with us. This is the last one I'll have you read out loud. But understand, while, while someone's looking for this, here's, here's the concept. Satan understood this. 
Lucifer, the fallen angel, understood that Jesus is the heir of everything, controls all things. And so what does he do when Jesus is on planet earth? He comes to him and tempts him to take possession of the power of the world. And he says to him, Jesus, if if you'll just bow down before me, I'll give you the kingdoms of the earth. Remember that temptation from Satan? Okay, what's going on there? Satan recognizes Jesus as the heir of everything, and he attempts to corrupt God's plan by tempting Jesus to take it prematurely. That's what he does. He tries to usurp God's rule. So if somebody came up with Philippians 2, 6 through 11, let's hear that one. Somebody have that? Go ahead, Jerry. Read it really loud, would you? Keep going, all the way to verse 11. Amen, church, right? You've heard that your whole life. Think of it this way. I stand in awe, absolutely in awe of the reality that the one who made everything, who is the heir of everything, according to Romans chapter 8, says that he has made me a fellow heir with him. Get your mind around that. Jesus has made us fellow inheritors of everything. We won't understand that fully till we get to heaven, but I stand in awe of that thought. It's a wonder of wonder. If you belong to Jesus Christ, that's the truth this morning. Now, if you feel like that was theologically deep, go to the next part of verse 2, because in the next part it says, through whom also he made the world. Now, that's not the world cosmos. Immediately, we would think that because in our minds, when we think of God creating, we would think of our planet, our sphere, our globe. Well, God did do that. But but let's get our mind a framework around thinking of of, of what he's talking about here. First of all, look with me on the screen. John 1.3 says this, All things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Now, one of the great proofs of Jesus' divinity, Jesus being God, is that he could create. We would agree that only God can create, right church? Only God can create. So Jesus comes on planet earth and what does he do? We see him creating bread out of nothing, making water out of wine, speaking fish into existence, creating eyeballs where people were born blind, causing nerve endings to connect where there were no nerve endings. God creating. One of the great proofs of his his divinity is his ability to create. So Christ originally created everything perfect and man sinned and sin entered the world and so the world was corrupted and it's dark and we fell. And scripture tells us in Romans that the creation groans within itself longing to be restored to what it was originally in the beginning. 
But this word cosmos is, is used in connection with a word aeon. I want you to see this word on the screen for the word world. So you understand what the writer is saying. It's in your notes this morning on the right-hand side, but the word ion or ionos represents through whom also he made the ionos, past, present, future, age, because God is eternal. There is no sense of past, present, future. Everything is the same. So God has to create time God creates, and so through whom also He made the ages, past, present, future. John MacArthur is another one of those authors that I told you I would share with you, some theologians. Here's his quote to help you understand that. The common Greek word for the world is cosmos, but that is not the word used here. The word here is ionos, which does not mean the material world, but the ages. Jesus is responsible not only for the physical earth, he is also responsible for creating time, space, energy, and matter. Christ created the whole universe and everything that makes it function. We're 44 words into the book of Hebrews, and this writer is already showing in Jesus, we have such a God and such God activity, there can be no going back. Even when the Romans are trying to kill you, There can be no going back. Even when you're thinking, this is too hard. It's all found in Jesus. He's he's establishing the preeminence of who Jesus is over all of the Old Testament, over all of its methods, all of its messengers. I'd say that's a pretty monumental statement, wouldn't you? I mean, you can't get much bigger than that. And that's exactly what these first century believers needed to hear. It's exactly what you and I need to hear in 2014. Jesus is preeminent over all. Now, if you feel like you've been to the theological rim, let's go to verse 3. Okay? Verse 3 starts out this way. And He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is the radiance of his glory. I'd like to tell you this is going to go really quick, but I'd be lying to you. I, I need to expand so you understand this. Parents, you, you will really understand this if you have children who've ever shown you a flashlight. You ever had a child come up to you and say, look at my flashlight, and then shine it in your eyes? Okay. Kids, have you ever done that? I've done it to my parents. We've probably all been tempted to shine a bright light in somebody's eye at some point. Look at this word on the screen, this word for radiance, alpagasma. It's an off flash. I've had children shine lights in my eyes before, and it becomes incredibly blinding in that moment. In that moment, when the off flash takes place, you can't see the flashlight, right? You can't see the instrument. So if God is the flashlight, the instrument, and he sent this off flash, the radiance of his glory, the best way in human tongue that we can express this is that Jesus expresses God to us because we can't see God. The brilliance is too intense, but we see in the radiance of it the light of Jesus. Jesus used this analogy all the time, talking about himself being the light of the world. Here's an example of it on the screen, John 8, 12. 
I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. Uh, We would agree that we live in a really dark world, would we not? I, I know you probably agree with that. We see disease. We see death. We see injustice. There's moral degradation. It's darkness. And into this dark world, God sent the off flash, the radiance of His glory. Now, the the minds of the unbelievers can't see this according to what Scripture tells us. Look with me. Paul's writing about this, 2 Corinthians 4.4. It says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the off flash, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But the truth is, those of us who are believers this morning, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can see God in the radiance of who Jesus is. That's the promise of Scripture. So Paul goes on, two more verses down the road, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, and he says this, For God who sent light, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's exactly what happens when Jesus comes into your life. Why? Because he's the exact representation of God. This is a Greek term that was used by the individuals at this time when they would make a dye and they would have wax and they wanted to stamp that wax with an exact image. So we tend to think like tape recording, like somebody recording our voice, well, it's a duplicate. Well, this is much more precise than that. It means the perfect imprint. Here's the incomprehensible part of the statement. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So the word icon is used. We, we have it in the English language today. It's in your notes. It's spelled E-I-K-O-N. But icon is like iconic, meaning the exact image. That's why Colossians 2.9 says, for in Him all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. I can't go any deeper with you on that one. I, I personally can't go any deeper than that. That's just what it says. So let's go to the list. This last part. Verse 3 also says, He upholds all things by the word of His power. Now, Christ not only made all things, one day will inherit all things. But according to this, He holds them all together. And this is mind-blowing, church. That He holds everything in place. So don't see Jesus as bearing up this heavy weight on His shoulder, bearing it up that way. That's not what Scripture's projecting here what it's saying is that he's carrying it along bearing it towards a goal with a purpose because uphold means to support to to keep in place here's the truth of scripture everything on earth everything in heaven everything in the universe is sustained right now by jesus our life on planet earth is a system of laws we operate and we function within laws like the law of thermodynamics, the law of gravity. So let's use the law of gravity for an example. We're told according to Scripture, Jesus holds all things together like the law of gravity. What if He relaxed that for just a moment? The oceans begin to lift. Life as we know it is altered. Scripture says that Jesus holds all all things together, material and immaterial. So think about how that implication is applied to your life. We're told, according to Philippians 1.6, 
that there's something that we should be confident of. Look with me at this on the screen. I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it. This one who perfects everything, who begins, doesn't give up and say, ah, he messed up, I'm done. No. Matter of fact, he takes us to a new level. That's why this writer of Jude, verse 24, was so enthusiastic because when Christ begins a work in your heart, he holds on to you and he sustains you all the way through to the end. So you can imagine Jude's excitement when he wrote this. Look at me on the screen. Verse 24, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and make you stand. It's not in you. It's not in your own power. It's Jesus in you, working through you, the one who holds all things together. So when your life is given over to Jesus, he holds it and he sustains it. And one day he will take it into the very presence of the living God. Wow. What does that say about someone who's not given their life to Jesus? The opposite is true. Their life is in chaos. Coming apart at the seams. Seams don't think that work right. No joy, no peace. But with Jesus, everything is complete. So we have this last part we're going to look at here. And it's not the simplest part. But it says this in verse 3. When he made purification of sins. What a statement, church. Jesus made purification of sins. So the Bible says the paycheck for sin is death, right? Wages of sin is death. So if you've lived your whole life and you're just living in sin, and Jesus never removed your sin from you, the paycheck at the end of that is going to be death. But Jesus went to the cross. He died the death that I deserved. He took my sins from me, took my sin upon himself. And so the author uses this word purification. Purification. It's a big $10 Greek word, karithosmos. And it literally is talking about this purging or the removal of stain. Sin is a stain, isn't it? It defiles you. Think in terms of somebody wearing a white shirt and eating a jelly sandwich. The chances are there's going to be a stain. If your name is Kring, there's probably going to be a stain there. I had a guy come to me after the first service and say, Jesus is my stain stick. He removes all the stains. That, that's what purification is. He takes the sins and he removes them. It's a, it's a complete cleansing. He takes it and purges us. And if you will believe that truth and you will accept it this morning, I'm here to tell you, he will free you from the penalty of sin. He's going to purify your life. If you turn your life over to Christ and you can stand and say with humility, I am clean because of what Jesus did. Now, here's the truth of this passage. Jesus created the world. Jesus sustains the world, as mind-blowing as that is. But a greater truth than that, sustaining and creating, is that Jesus saves the world. That's what he came for. He died to save us. That's why Hebrews 9, 10, 26 says this, but now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested for what? To put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Maybe you can say that this morning like I can. My sins are forgiven because of what Jesus did. And we get this last part of theology he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Now you know why I could only do three verses this morning, right? Take this thought. 
yesterday morning I was helping a friend load a door. And uh, this door is pretty large. It's a French door. And um, it it took five of us to put it into the building. Now we were going to take it out of the building and put it on his trailer. So my friend comes with a a friend of his own. And um, there's just three of us to lift what five guys had lifted. And so we beast it up and we get it up the snowbank and up the hill and we load it onto the trailer and I can't go with them to help them unload it. I've, I've got to get ready and come over to the church. So I said to them, what are you going to do? How are you going to unload this thing? It weighs several hundred pounds. And the guy who came with him has said, well, you've probably never met my friends, lightning and thunder. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Where's Josh? <laughs> Think of the right hand of God, the power side of God, the thunder side of God. Jesus was exalted to the right hand of majesty on high. The power side of God. That's what we're told in this passage. And here's the spectacular thing about this statement, church. Remember, he's writing to Hebrews. He's writing to Jewish thinkers. And he said, Jesus sat down. What does Scripture tell you about Jesus? He's our high priest. Well, the high priest that they knew in the Levitical system never got to sit down. He went into the temple. He made sacrifices and over and over and over and over again. He's making sacrifices. There's no chair. He goes into the Holy of Holies, sprinkles blood on the Ark of the Covenant. There's no chair. Why? Because the priest's work was never done. It's never finished. Scripture says, He ascended to the right hand of majesty on high, and He sat down. Why? Because it is finished. That's the amazing thing that this writer is saying. It's done. There's nothing else to do. There's no more sacrifices to be made. He goes to the right hand of the majesty on high, the power side of God. And he sits down. What could not be accomplished under the Old Covenant for centuries of sacrifices is accomplished in one life, at one time, in one moment. That's the truth of Scripture, church. So I send you out with three reminders this morning. It's in your notes. You're going to see it on the screen. When you think of Jesus sitting down at the right hand of the majesty on high, Have this image burned in your mind. First of all, he sat down as a sign of honor. We just had this read for us, Philippians 2.11, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's a sign of honor where he's seated. Number two, he sat down as a ruler. And we're going to look at this a little bit more next week, but this is what it says in 1 Peter 3. He is at the right hand of God, having gone into the heavens after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. So he sat down as a sign of honor. He sat down as a ruler. Here's the last one. He sat down to intercede. As a truth of Scripture, Romans 8, 34, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. What does that mean to you? That, that means when the tempter, when the evil one, comes along and accuses you before the Father. And that's what Scripture says. Satan accuses you. He says, look at that screw-up. He messed up again. Look at the sin in his life. 
Jesus intercedes. He says, no, I bought that one. He's been purged with my blood. He's been purified. He belongs to me. That's the truth of Scripture. Jesus intercedes for us at the right hand of God. And he names you because you name him. So sitting at God's right hand is a way of saying that Christ's saving work is done. There's nothing else to be done. He's in the place of highest honor. That is our Lord Jesus Christ, church. And he is beater, isn't he? Mm. Mm. Let's take that truth with us as we pray this morning. Father, we proclaim the excellency of Jesus Christ unabashedly. He is supreme above everything. So we thank you for this privileged position that we have. And as best we could do, Father, we've examined your word and tried to understand it. Where we fell short, God, we ask that you would fill in the blanks. We know that any teaching that we arrived at this morning or any learning that was done was done because of the power of your Holy Spirit in us and that Holy Spirit who broods over this auditorium. I thank you for the presence of the Spirit and for the teaching that has taken place. God, drive these truths deep in our lives. Bless us for having been here and for having studied these truths. Make us bold as a result of it, Father. Bold to trust you no matter the circumstances. It's in Jesus' mighty name, our King of kings, that we ask this. And all God's people said, Amen.